Good morning, and welcome to week two of our series on race. And you know, I really shouldn't be surprised about the feedback that we've gotten so far. The feedback we received so far is this. Hey, I agree with the premise, and I understand why you started where you did last week. Now, let's dig in. I love our church family. This is going to be a hard conversation. It's going to be a difficult conversation, an uncomfortable conversation. And you're like, hey, we are in. Well, if you missed last week, we opened with this benchmarking premise that racial discrimination and disparities, they are real. They are absolutely real. That, that's undisputable, indisputable. But why they exist and what should be done about them, now that is where the conversation usually ends and the arguments begin. Last week, we made this tragic observation, and it's worth writing down again this week. The way that most people are responding to racial discrimination and disparities are turning potential allies into adversaries. And again, what a tragedy that is. Instead of each of us bringing our unique perspectives to the table and working together, something that should unite us is dividing us as a nation, as, as schools, dividing even the world of sports and churches. More and more people are becoming increasingly entrenched, either on the right or on the left, instead of finding common ground and then working out from there. You know, if you want to go fast, as the saying goes, you go alone. But if you want to go far, what do they say? You go together. Well, in the weeks leading up to last Sunday's launch, we were trying to really work on that together piece. We, we were saying, okay, what are your hopes for this series? How can we help you? And what we heard over and over again was this. Hey, I, I want to come away better equipped for those conversations about race that I find myself in. So that is what we're going to focus on today. There's no way that we can cover everything related to this important work, this important topic, but what we can do is give a framework as we enter into these important conversations and do this important work, a framework that helps us to do that in a God-honoring way. Difficult conversations are like this. <laughs> They're like this grenade. Now, you can tell an awful lot about a person by the way that they respond when a grenade is thrown. When a grenade is thrown, do they run away? When a grenade is thrown, do they pick it up and do they throw it back? Or are they even one of the people to throw it first? Or do they respond a third way? Well, we're going to get to that third way. We're going to work our way towards that third way. And let's get started with this. At Emmanuel, the Bible is our standard. It's our standard for belief. It's our standard for behavior. Scripture is filled with principles for difficult conversations. Here's a sampling. You can go to our webpage. You can download the, the, these notes and um, you can look all these verses up in context. Here are some biblical principles for difficult conversations. Accountability, grace, empowerment, position, reflection, process, de-escalation, alignment, reconciliation, hope. Scripture provides the rich and nuanced understanding of what it takes to create the kind of community that we long to be a part of. What we're going to do today is we're going to take a look at a case study. 
case study of when the early church faced a challenging situation. And a man named Paul was at the center of it. Last week, we opened with a letter from Paul to a culture like ours. It is easy to forget that there was a time when Paul was one of these grenade throwers. You know, there was a time when Paul was following a very different set of principles than the, one that he, the ones he later um, lived by. He was solidly in the camp in his early days of, I'm right, you're wrong, and if you don't shut up, I'm going to take you out. This was true until Paul had an encounter with Jesus. And when the scales fell from his eyes, Paul was awakened to a new way of seeing the world. And when he was awakened, he also was welcomed into a new kind of community. So Paul went out to tell others about this new way, the way of Jesus, and about this new community that they could be a part of. And one of the things that he consistently experienced, as he did, were mobs. But what he experienced in a city called Antioch was very different. The way in which they engaged in difficult conversations was such a stark contrast to the entrenched attitudes that he experienced almost everywhere else. So let's take a look at what can happen when a group of people seek solutions together. If you have your Bible with you, please open with me. Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 2. If you don't have a Bible at home, you can download a free app. It's a great one at uversion.com. Here we go. Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 2. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Okay, here's what's going on. There were the, this community of Christians in a city called Antioch, and they weren't able to resolve the conflict that they had on their own. Rather than splitting the church over this, rather than going into entrenched positions where you started lobbing grenades at one another, they agreed to send representatives to the church in Jerusalem to get some outside help. Well, when they arrived in Jerusalem, they were welcomed. Let's pick up the story, verses 6 through 10. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider the matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that, my mouth, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? All right, let's talk about this a little bit. There is so much. There is so much we could learn. We could just stop right here. And we'd have three great principles. Let's talk about them. Did you notice that Peter was the first to speak? And that Peter, when he spoke, he was supportive of Paul. Why is that significant? Because Peter and Paul didn't always see eye to eye on everything. So what we have going on here is right here in this, um, in Acts, uh, and also in his, his own letters, Peter supports the merits of Paul's position even though they don't always agree on everything else. That was number one. Number two, did you also notice that there's an attentiveness on the part of the believers in Jerusalem 
to not only listen to how these positions sound, but to look at the results, to look at the fruit. And number three, Peter calls for consistency. He reminds the group that we should only hold others to the standards that we hold ourselves to. Oh, think about how different conversations on race would be if we just did those three things. If we affirmed good points, even we don't agree with everything everyone else believes. If, two, we looked at actual results rather than just what sounds good. And three, if we held people accountable to being consistent. All right, we could stop there, but there's more. Look at this. Verse 12. And the assembly fell silent, and they listened. Can you imagine if we just did that? If more people listened? What if we heard people out instead of shouting them down? What if there was more active listening and thoughtfulness and discernment in our conversations? All right, verse 13. Oh, here's where it gets so good. Verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replied. If you want to read a great book, read the book of James. He's such a practitioner. I love where this goes next. Instead of just talking and talking and talking and talking and talking about a problem, James says, hey, we've been talking. It's time to make decisions. If I've said this once, I've said it a million times, it is so easy to identify problems. It's as easy as hunting cows. The harder work is for us to then come together, bring people together, and come up with solutions that are actually helpful. That is what we're in more need of. Can I get an amen? All right, well, after anchoring what he's about to say to Scripture, James does that. Then James offers a possible course of action for the group's discernment, verses 19 through 21. He says, hey, therefore... My judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has been in every city, those, has, has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. All right, here's what's going on uh, right there. And again, this is so good. What James proposes is that they start with common ground. James says, hey, in every city, people are reading the works of Moses. In other words, they're reading the Old Testament. These people, if we start here over the course of the next weeks, months, we're going to be able to build on it. Let's start with common ground and work out from there. <laughs> Can you imagine if more of us did more of that? If instead of leading with something that's just you know is going to be divisive, what if we started with common ground and worked out from there? Let me give you a practical example of this. One of the battles that's out there right now in conversations about race is the battle over definitions, including the definition of racism itself. How do we expect to get anywhere if we're fighting over definitions? rather than working together to find common ground. Let me give you a couple examples from two different camps when it comes to definitions about racism. Here's the definition when I type racism into my computer in my little dictionary, it shoots this. Uh, pre racism, prejudice, discrimination, or antagonism directed against someone of a different race based on the belief that one's own race is superior. Now, this is the type of definition that I think most people are familiar with. Most people understand racism to be personal and that there's some individuals who are more racist than others. 
So some use this definition. Now there's others that use a version of this next definition. All right, like this one. Racism, the marginalization and or oppression of people of color based on a socially constructed racial hierarchy that privileges white people. There are those who believe and believe very strongly that you can only be a racist if you're in a position of power. There's people that then take that even further and believe that if you are white in America, you are racist, whether or not you're aware of it. Now, can you see why people who could be potential allies in this are going to hear that and like the grenade, they're either going to just say, I'm out, or they're going to throw back at the person who, who lobbed that their direction. What if, what if, instead of drawing lines in the sand and saying, here is the one definition that everybody should use, what if we started with common ground and worked out from there? What if we, we started a conversation like this? Can individuals have racist thoughts and engage in racist behaviors? Of course. Can people of every skin tone hold prejudicial thoughts and engage in discriminatory behaviors? Of course. Well, what if we just keep taking this a little further? Okay, well, then is it possible for racist views and racist practices to become embedded in systems and structures and institutions? Most reasonable people would say, of course. And then take that even further. Okay, in a nation like ours, where whites are the founders and whites are the majority, is it possible that systems have been designed to give white people an advantage? Well, of course. Do you see how if you start with common ground and work out, you can have a conversation that's very different instead of turning potential allies into adversaries? All right, let's go back to our text. There was widespread support for what James proposed. So they put their decision in writing and they sent it back with Paul and Barnabas, along with two leaders from the Jerusalem church who could verify the letter was legit and could help them with next steps. Here's how that letter was received. Acts 15, verses 30 through 31. So, when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. The way these followers of Jesus handled disagreement was so different than the way Paul used to handle disagreement himself and was so different than what Paul had seen almost everywhere else he went. It was so different than that mob mentality that Paul has experienced. Now, if we want to bring about real change and maximize our ally-building potential, We've got to go beyond entrenched narratives. One of the things I did in the months leading up to this series is I had lots and lots of conversations, lots of conversations. One of my favorite was this conversation with, uh, with a young man down that I've known. He lives down in Juarez, Mexico. This young man, uh, he was born right around the same time as my daughter, Emma, so I've known him his entire life. His name is Josue. So we're sitting at the Lopez family table, where, and, and he has got this book on constitutions. Why? Because as a personal growth exercise, he was going to write a constitution. Of course he was. This kid is so brilliant. Well, anyway, anyway I told him that we were going to have this series on race. And I just asked an open question, hey, what do you think? What do you think? And he had some great thoughts. Again, this young man, he, he born in Juarez right now. He lives in, in El Paso. He's going to school in El Paso. 
And he still has the scars, especially on his hands, where he was shot by Mexican police. He's got quite an experience, quite a story. Well, one of the things I remember most about the is the when, in this conversation was the distinction that he drew between what he called the narrative and the nuance. He said there's all, there are all these narratives out there that people put forth about race, but things are rarely as simple as they make them. He said there's usually important nuances that people leave out. All right, let's talk about this. There's a place to write this in your notes too. How do we move beyond entrenched narratives into nuanced engagement that brings about change? How do we experience more of what we saw in that example of the Church of Antioch? All right, let me give you this. This tool is so helpful. I use this all the time, not just for difficult conversations about race, but difficult conversations, period. And there's a place to write this in your notes. Every difficult conversation involves three conversations. The what happened conversation, the feelings conversation, and the identity conversation. Let's start with the feelings conversation because this is often where you must start. Have any of you watched any of the difficult conversations um, with a black man uh, videos? Well, the, the man who put those out, Emmanuel Acho, he also wrote a book based on the same name. And in there, he writes this. He says, instead of telling someone to calm down, if they are, say, passionately recounting a racially charged incident, understand their emotion and work hard to hear them. This is one of the reasons why we didn't offer this series in the summer of 2020. There was way too much emotion at that time to have a nuanced conversation. That was a season, especially for most of us in the majority, to listen and to lament. That's the feeling conversation. When emotions are raw, you've got to tend to those feelings before any kind of nuanced conversation is possible. Similar things could be said about the identity conversation. Oh, there is so much going on under the surface in us. One of those things is a sense of self, a sense of identity. We have a deep need to feel competent. We have a deep need to feel that we're good. We have a deep need to feel lovable. And if something comes at us that threatens any of those things, whew, nuanced conversations are extremely difficult then too. Now, one of the themes that I've heard over and over and over again is that there is no one voice, no single perspective that speaks for all persons of color. There's no one voice that speaks for all blacks or all Asians or all Latinos or all indigenous peoples or any single spokesman for any of the beautiful skin tones that we see all around us. Most people resent having an identity ascribed to them or to be put in a box, especially if it's a negative one. Well, one of the things that I'm so thankful for is how more and more people are referring to race as a social construct. 
because they're beginning to acknowledge there are far more differences between individuals within a racial group than there are between the racial groups themselves. And this is true biologically, this is true sociologically. Can I get an amen? For centuries, for centuries, people of color were treated as inferior in the United States. And systematic measures were taken to dehumanize them, to ascribe a common identity to them. And that was wrong. My brothers and sisters, this is why I'm perplexed that there's a new racial construct, or at least newer, called whiteness that is used so widely. When you construct a category that prescribes an identity, be prepared that people, walls are going to come up. And do you want to take potential allies and turn them into adversaries? Now, for the record, we can't have a serious discussion about race in America without going to that place of what white people have done in the past and how that affects all of us today. But what if, what if we began conversations by finding common ground and working from there? For example, what if we started a conversation with, is it easy to have blind spots? Of course. What if we built on that? Are there advantages to being white in America that white people may not see? Well, of course. Let's build on that. Are there people who really believe in white supremacy? Oh, yeah, there's plenty of those people. Then let's build on that. Is it possible that white people may hold some supremacist views that they are not even aware of? Any reasonable person would say, yeah, of course. Do you see, there's, there are ways to have this important conversation without using terms that, that instantly put walls up. What if we followed the example of the early church and we started by finding common ground and working out from there? Okay, once we've tended to the feelings conversation, the identity conversation, and I shouldn't say once we have because those things keep coming up and we always have to be aware of them um, in the, throughout the conversation. But as we're dealing with those, now we can begin to have the what happened conversation. And the mistake that many people make when it comes to the what happened conversation is thinking that we actually know what happened. Our perspective is limited, isn't it? I love this quote. It's from a book that Sam recommended to me. Since I'm a speck on a blue dot in a gigantic universe, my perspective is often way off. Can I get an amen to that? All right, here's another one. You're entitled to your own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. That's good, too. Here's another. You have two ears and one mouth. Use them proportionately. And one more. This one's right out of the Bible, Proverbs 8. 17, the one who states his case first seems right until another comes and examines him. All right, for those that are taking notes, I invite you to write this down. You are far less likely to give a proper prescription without the correct diagnosis. The problem could be systemic. The problem could be personal responsibility. The problem is probably more nuanced than either of those two things. And we're going to have a much better shot 
at correctly identifying the nature of the problem when we seek out different perspectives and listen to one another. Okay, quickly, let's review the framework. Every difficult conversation involves three conversations. The what happened conversation, the feelings conversation, the identity conversation. Does anyone really expect that we can have the kind of healthy and helpful conversation that we need to have about race without being attentive to each of these three things? If you want to practice this, join us here this Thursday. Let's apply this framework to disparities about income, to CRT, to riots, to monuments, police shootings, and more. All right, if a difficult conversation is like this grenade, oh, it's so much easier to walk away, isn't it? It's so tempting just to throw it back at those who threw it at us. But there's a third way, isn't there, to respond to a grenade. And it's similar to what Jesus did. And that is to absorb the blast. To be the one who's patient and kind. To be the one who turns the other cheek. To be the one who does the hard work, the hard work of seeking to understand before trying to be understood. You know what's been jumping out to me a lot lately? Scriptures challenge us to begin with ourselves. There's a story that I love. I, t I use it with most of the couples that we do in, in pre-marriage. And it's this, this story of a pastor. He's down south. His name's Andy Stanley. And one day, this couple came in for marriage counseling. And the husband was just so mad. And he sits down and, and he says, Pastor, I want you to talk to my wife. And Pastor Stanley says, why? And the guy says, because she's not doing what the Bible says. And Pastor Stanley says, what do you mean? And the guy says, She's not submitting to me the way the Bible says she should submit to me. And Pastor Stanley says, you talking about Ephesians 5? And the guy says, yes. So Pastor Stanley says, all right, what does Ephesians 5 say to you? And the man said, to love my wife and lay down, my, love my wife and to lay down my life for her the way Christ laid down his life for the church. So Pastor Stanley says, why don't you start there? What if more of us started with what the Bible says to us? What if more of us, instead of running from grenades or, or throwing them, what if more of us absorbed that blast? What if in this world marked by so many mobs and so much finger-pointing, imagine if we modeled something very, very different from the culture around us. What if we modeled something much more like the church in Antioch? Before we bring today's teaching to a close, can I show you something about that church? This is from Acts 11, verse 26. It was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. There was something different about that community that made people say, we got to come up with a whole new word. They're not like the, the rest of these communities. They're a lot like that Christ that they talk about. My brothers and sisters, may our life so shine before others, our neighbors, our friends, our family, that they may see our good deeds and praise our Father who is in heaven. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so thankful 
for these examples, both from our past and from our present, of people who are, are through your spirit living lives that are aligned with the way of Jesus. Father, for those of us who know you, may we recommit right here, right now, to following your ways, your example. And Father, I pray for those who are listening right now, who've never consciously surrendered their life to you. May you open their eyes. May you open their hearts, their minds, to be able to see you for who you are. And may they take that step right here, right now, of saying, instead of going my own way, Jesus, help me to follow you. Father, meet them in that moment. Fill them with your spirit and help them to take those steps in faith. Father, help us all to honor you, not just in this work and in this conversation, but in all things. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.